Let me read just a few words from the Apostle Paul to the believers in Rome. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? He goes on to say, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for these truths that we've come to rehearse. From the lips and the singing of little children to our own hearts, we rejoice in you and that nothing can separate us from you because of our faith firmly rooted in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the moment of truth has come. The ink on this edict is not even dry. Esther has called the people to fast, and with that, the the implication to pray, following the words of Joel the prophet, to declare a sacred fast and an assembly to seek the face of God and return with their whole heart. Let's go back into this drama now and try our best to keep up with some rather interesting twists and turns. We're in the book of Esther at chapter 5 now and verse 1. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. Now, you want to stop here for just a moment because that was rather unexpected. Uh, You probably read ahead anyway, but uh, nobody expected the king to give her his favor. In fact, this is a little too easy even for the rabbis going back centuries. And so in the Greek version of the Old Testament, they decided to add about 100 verses, as I've told you before, And right here is where they insert some of those verses to try to make it a little bit more believable. And so they add uh, verses in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was, by the way, formulated about 100 years before the birth of Christ. And if I translate it rather woodenly, it would read something like this. Esther's heart was pounding with fear. When she had passed through all the doors, she stood before the king, raising his face, Flushed with color, he looked at her in fiercest anger. The queen turned pale and fainted. He sprang from his throne in alarm, took her up in his arms until she revived, and he comforted her with reassuring words. Sounds more like Sleeping Beauty, doesn't it? But it's a lot more believable that way. Frankly, what happens is God is at work in this king's heart, And she violates all of the protocol, stating to the king that her time is more important than his, which wouldn't go over very well. 
And yet when Ezra writes this account under divine inspiration, he's not nearly as colorful. All we're given is that, notice here verse 2, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the, the scepter. This was all court protocol before the king. Instead of, of, of dying, she's going to be able to keep on living. At best, instead of being rebuked and dismissed by an irritated king, the king gives her his undivided attention and bends the scepter toward her, which was tantamount to saying, come on in and tell me what's on your mind. This was absolutely shocking. In fact, the entire court screeches to a halt. I remember going to the courthouse downtown Raleigh to pay for a ticket I'd gotten where evidently the radar gun of the state trooper had malfunctioned. <laughs> a friend of mine was a judge. And uh, in fact, I, asked, I called him and asked him what courtroom I needed to go to. He told me, he says, look, I'm in the court nearby. Why don't you stop in and say hello to me before you leave? I said, oh, sure. So after paying for my fine, I uh, slipped into the back of his courtroom, which was in session. Courtroom was packed with people. Sitting on the front row, I could just make out the shoulders, the heads of men dressed, about six of them in orange jumpsuits. Their wrists were shackled together, handcuffed together, and their ankles were shackled. In fact, all six of them were shackled together. Evidently, the case, my friend was dealing with a case that, that had something to do with, with them, and he motioned. He, I was going to slip back up. He spotted me at the back, and he motioned for me to come forward. I went, it's okay. He said, no, come forward. So I, he's the judge. I, I, I walked down, I still remember walking there. Everything quiets down. Everybody's looking at me. I walked through, walked through the swinging door past the six guys in their jumpsuits shackled. They're looking up at me. And what do I, what do I say? Hey, how you doing? Or whatever. <laughs> what I wanted to say is if this man is harsh to you, I really don't know who he is. That's what I want you to know. Talk about conspicuous. Everything just sort of ground to a halt. I wanted to, you know, be buried somewhere. Imagine multiplying that by a few million. This judge has not invited Esther to stop by and say hello. In fact, archaeologists have confirmed for us that standing just below the bottom of the steps of his throne was a man... And in his hands, he held a heavy axe to deal with people that felt their time was more important than the king's. See, Esther, we would expect, apart from the providence of God, would lose her head that afternoon. But instead, and I'm convinced, to everyone's surprise, he asks her in verse 3, look there, what is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Note this, even to half of the kingdom... It shall be given to you. What's bothering you? The phrase, even half of the kingdom, is an expression which meant he's just willing to do whatever he can do to satisfy her request. He's basically saying, well, I'm in a good mood. Come on in. Tell me what's on your mind. And I'll do whatever possible that I can do as king of this realm to satisfy your request. Esther says in verse 4, If it pleases the king... May the king and Haman come.
come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Now that's surprising. In other words, what I want you to do is come to my quarters, the queen's quarters, after work and eat supper with me. Oh, and by the way, bring the prime minister with you when you come. This was a stroke of genius. No doubt given to her over this three-day fast by our Lord. By inviting Haman, she accomplishes several things. The first thing she does is she allows the ego of Haman to blind his eyesight. Any suspicions he would have automatically entertained about why the queen is risking her life to have supper with the king, something's up. Those suspicions would have been immediately neutralized. He's so caught away with the fact that he gets invited. He should have been thinking, why would the queen do this? Something's up. But he's so enamored with the invitation to join the king and queen for dinner, he never even asked the first question. Just in case you missed it, this was evidently not what Esther had originally planned to do. We know that from earlier, where she told Mordecai, call everyone to fast, the sacred assembly. And at the end of three days, I will go into the king's presence, and Esther says, and if I perish, I what? I perish. In other words, after three days, I'm going to go into the king, and I'm going to lay it out, and if he kills me, He kills me. But during that three-day fast, God's wisdom is obviously at work in her heart. And so she formulates this plan that is going to do this amazing thing. She is going to have the king and the conspirator, the prime minister, Haman, alone with her. Which means then she has pulled them away from the court, away from the press, away from the obvious public embarrassment that will come to the king once he discovers that by his own order an edict has been signed which puts her to death. This is two queens in a row, remember? Because of his brash arrogance and foolishness, he's about to lose his second queen, and so she pulls them in privately to save him the embarrassment of that public exposure, which will, of course, help in his decision. So the king, and I'm going to summarize for the sake of time as much as I can, but they arrive for dinner. When the meal is over, the king and Haman are drinking wine. The end of the meal, verse 6, look there. The king said to Esther, okay, out with it, basically. What's your petition? For it shall be granted to you. In other words, what was so important that you would risk your life? It must be so important. I want you to know I will grant it. So Esther replies, verse 7, My petition and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Now where in the world did that come from? My petition and request is, will you guys come back tomorrow and then I'll tell you what my request is. Now I've read more commentators than you care to know, but I'll tell you this. Several of them believe that Esther choked that she couldn't get it out. And frankly, I can understand that. Can't you? I mean, they're in her private quarters. There's the king and there's Hitler. (laughs) Right? Demonically inspired, this madman 
who wants to see all of her people killed. I'm, I, I believe she is terrified. I believe throughout the entire meal, she is wrestling her emotions under control, while at the same time trying to remain with her exterior calm like nothing is happening. Others point out in their view that Esther has rather cleverly gotten her husband to agree to do whatever it is she wanted him to do before he finds out what it is she wanted him to do. Wives have been doing that for centuries. (laughs) The problem with that view, this view of Esther maneuvering, you know, the king to promise ahead of time, the problem with that view is that the king has already promised ahead of time. I just read it. She doesn't need a double. He said it in the courtroom, and then he says it here the first. She doesn't need a double you know, reinforcement from the king. In fact, what she's doing is risking his, his irritation. This is a man that doesn't wait for anybody. Now she's making him wait. My request is that you come back tomorrow night, and you've got to wait to find out what it is that I want. <laughs> what I believe is happening here, ladies and gentlemen, is the providence of God is moving Esther to keep from asking. At that moment, he muzzles her mouth. Now, from from her perspective, she might have been afraid. From her perspective, had you asked her, she might have frozen up. She might have lost her courage. But from God's perspective, this way, according to this plan, it was his plan that she not ask until the following evening. Why? Because a lot of things have to take place in the next 24 hours for this plan to succeed. Things outside the plan of Esther. Things unknown to Esther. In fact, what Esther doesn't know is her plan to keep the Jewish people alive is still going to crush her because before that can happen, Mordecai will be dead. She doesn't know that that Haman's going to go home and plan Mordecai's death, it'll be too late. Unless God does something in the night to change the course of events, Mordecai is going to be less than 24 hours from death. And here's why. Look at verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. I mean, he's just all a flutter. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Now, evidently, Mordecai's taken off his sackcloth. He knew, evidently, that Esther had a, a, a favorable reception by the king. He puts on his clothing. He's back at his desk in the king's gate. That, that, that was the palace administration office, as we've talked about. He's inside. He's evidently sitting at his desk. When Haman walks out... Takes the corridor out, maybe he picks up his briefcase, whatever, he comes in through the administrative offices. Everybody who's seated stands and then bows in reverence to him, except Mordecai, who stays seated. Now it's no longer an issue of, well, he just didn't see Mordecai not bowing. Now Mordecai, in front of him, refuses to get out of his seat and bow down. Before Haman, everyone must grovel. This egomaniac doesn't get what he wants. But Haman controlled himself. No one's going to spoil his party. 
He's just been invited back to dine with the king and queen again. I mean, two times, once is a mystery, twice is a pattern. I mean, this, this is exciting. I might, might as well just tell my wife not to expect me for supper from here on out. This is, this is the best day of my life. Tomorrow's going to be even, even better. Verse 10 tells us he went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Wait till they hear what happened to me today. <laughs> Look at him go on and on. Verse 11. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons in every instance where the king had magnified him and how the king had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Blah, 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 blah. That's in the Hebrew text between the lines. Okay? <laughs> like Narcissus here. This, this Greek legend tells us his greatest love was his own reflection. He became his favorite object of devotion and perished because of it. This is another narcissist. Everything revolved around him. Everybody's at his disposal. Everybody's got to listen to him go on and on and on. You work around anybody like that? They get invited somewhere and you have to hear all about why. They get a promotion from the boss, and you have to hear why they were promoted above everybody else. They work there in the office building. They purchase something new, and you've got to go out and look at it or look at pictures. They come back from a trip. Everybody's got to watch the pictures, and here I am here, and here I'm standing over here, and here I'm eating this, and here I went there, and on and on and on. You ever heard that little ditty when you were a kid? I learned it at camp. Oh, it's so hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't take my eyes off the mirror because I get better looking each day. (laughs) Camp was a high moment in my spiritual life, I can tell you that right now. And this is Haman's favorite song. He sings it. And he doesn't mind singing it out loud to whoever, whomever is in the room. He sings it every chance he gets. So here, according to this text, is Zeresh and all of Haman's family and neighbors... They've heard it all before, his job, his sons, his money, and all that. Haman is frankly one gigantic hot air balloon. Self-conceited, self-absorbed, self-applauding, self-promoting. But did you notice here in the text that even though he's going on and on and on about how great his life is and how wonderful he is, at the core of his being, he is still dissatisfied. Verse 13. He says to them, yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This is classic human nature. I got 99 things, but I want 100. I got 100 and I want 101. The one thing out of reach keeps me from enjoying everything I now have. Like King Ahab, you remember in the Old Testament perhaps how he came into his palace and he's, he's upset and Jezebel comes in and says, honey, what's the problem? And he says, because I can't buy Naboth's vineyard, he won't sell it to me. And literally, he was in his room pouting. His face turned toward the wall. And Jezebel says, there, there, I'll take care of it. Imagine he has vineyards. He has orchards. He has fields. He's the king. 
But he didn't have that one thing, and that one thing distorted and obscured his vision. I have two quarters in my hands. I can hold them up and I can see all of you, except the last three rows, and that's why you sit back there just fine. (laughs) And I can see these quarters too. I can see my notes, see my Bible. Not a problem. It's really not in my way. I know it's there. But if I bring these quarters up close and closer and closer and closer and closer until they cover my eyes, the only thing I can really see now are these. What has happened is my sight has been obscured by 50 cents. Is there anything obscuring yours? Is there anything blocking your vision? Is there something that you don't have? Is there something that you can't reach and yet you've pulled it up so close to your heart and your eyes you can't see anything else? The truth is we are a lot more like Haman than we want to admit. The favorite person in our world to please is ourselves. Our most favorite topic of conversation is who we are and what we want or how we feel. The most deserving person that we know who ought to be treated rightly and kindly is ourselves. Our greatest struggle before we came to Christ and our greatest struggle after we've come to Christ is me, myself, and I. And all the people said, Amen. Oh, that we would long for God and His Spirit to daily remove from our eyes those things which obscure our vision so that we can see one another and esteem each other more important than ourselves. Philippians 2, 3. That we could see Him and discern His hand so that the Lord would become the highest object of our devotion. Psalm 73, 25. Haman craves for one thing he doesn't have and it will be like Narcissus his undoing now at this point his wife and his friends rally around him and they basically give him fairly ungodly crass and cruel advice look at verse 14 they said have a gallow 50 cubits high made in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it then go joyfully with the king to the banquet go eat kill the guy go eat and the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. See, Esther doesn't know about this. Her second banquet the next evening will be too late. Mordecai will be dead. Build the gallows 50 cubits high. That's seven stories, 75 feet high. (laughs) Let's make sure nobody can miss it. The word gallows was actually for the Persians a sharpened pole upon which the victim was impaled and publicly shamed in his death. When Ahasuerus' father took the throne, or his grandfather took the throne, he had 2,000 disloyal individuals impaled. It would be a raised platform or maybe the side of a hill that would support the pole. 
Zara says, make sure it's 75 feet high. Nobody can miss. This is what happens to people who do not bow to your glory. At this point in the drama, frankly, things have never looked worse. Esther's plan isn't going to work. Mordecai's plan isn't going to work. In fact, Mordecai's a dead man unless God does something during the night. And does God ever do something during the night? How many of you disobeyed and read ahead? That's what I was afraid of. All right, the next scene opens with a bad case of divinely ordained insomnia. Chapter 6, verse 1. During the night... The king could not sleep. I love that. (laughs) The king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. I love this. The king's in his bedchamber. He can't fall asleep. He's read the newspapers. He's tried counting sheep. He's thumbed through better homes and gardens. That'll knock anybody out. Nothing works. So... He calls a servant and says, look, I want you to begin to read from literally the words of the days. The words of the days. This is the Persian equivalent to the congressional record. That will knock anybody out too. Of all the thousands of items as that man has access to these records, and the Persians were were world-renowned for their record-keeping, Of all the places the servant could choose to begin to read, he turns to some events that occurred five years earlier where a man named Mordecai heard about a plot that was going to take the life of the king, told Esther, and the king's life was spared. The reading of this event, by the way, did several things. It brings up audibly into the king's mind the two names of his loyal subjects, Esther and Mordecai. Brought to his mind as well that he's never rewarded Mordecai for his act of loyalty in saving the king's life. So he asks in verse 3, look there, what honor and dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? I'd like to know what we gave him. In other words, what does the record show that I've done for him? This, This is... And the, and, the, and the servant scans the record. He looks a few paragraphs down and back up. It changes you know, topic, subject. And he says, King, you've done nothing for him. Now, this is somewhat embarrassing. This is out of character for Persian customs. He's already rewarded faithful soldiers with plots of land. He's, he's already made one man the governor of Cilicia for saving the king's, his, uh, his brother, his brother's life. Hazarus' father and grandfather have consistently rewarded acts of faithful citizenry with jewelry and, 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 uh, and garments. His great-grandfather, Cyrus, had given a loyal citizen a horse with a solid gold bridle and a solid gold dagger and expensive clothing. This is how the king showed he was, you know, a, a great guy. The recipients even had a special title. They were called or known as the king's benefactors. But this king has failed to fulfill his royal duty. And get this, you'll find out a little later, but right now he learns in the reading that Mordecai happens to be a what? A Jew. How can he promote someone that he is condemned to die? How can he honor a man that is under the edict of death that will take place in less than 12 months? 
This is a problem and an issue for the Bible student to wrestle through. There are a couple of views that I'll present to you, and you can decide yourself. I'll tell you, tell you where I'm throwing my hat in. He either completely overlooked in his absent-mindedness the connection between Mordecai's lineage and the edict, which he'd signed a few weeks earlier for all the Jews to die. Or more likely, and I would throw my hat in here, Haman had never identified the people that were to be killed to the king. He didn't know it was the Jewish people. And that provoked my thinking. In fact, I went back, and we don't have time to do this today. I'll just give you the result. But I went back to chapter 3 and read it even more carefully than ever before. And it, it occurred to me, it, it is true, it struck me, Haman is the one who actually wrote the edict. Haman is the one who sealed the edict with the ring the king had given him. It's quite possible that Ahasuerus' callous disregard for life Let him to not even care to find out who the people were that Haman wanted to kill. Doesn't matter to me. Haman, just kill them. And the chapter ended with him sitting down to drink together. So he doesn't know. And just about the time, the servant informs the king that his loyal subject, Mordecai, the Jew, has never been rewarded Guess who shows up early at the king's court because this is going to be the greatest day of his life? Haman. That hot air balloon has descended to get started with his special day. Just finished building his gallows. He's been up all night too. He's got a private engagement with the king and queen. This is going to be the greatest day of his life. Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires honor? I think that's a legitimate question. I don't think he's trying to trip up Haman. One of his trusted counselors, he, he comes in and he says, hey, what, what do you think I ought to do for a guy that I'd like to honor? What do you suggest? Well, Haman, of course, thinks it's all about him. And he's obviously done some thinking because immediately he's able to list six things. He pulls out his list. Well, just, you just so happen to ask. Verse 7, for the man whom the king desires to honor... Verse 8, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Now stop a moment. He's saying don't just give that man a horse. Give him a horse you've ridden. That's special. I mean, you can get on a plane over here at RDU and then wait for 45 minutes before it takes off, but you can do that. But if the president called you and said, hey, I just want you to know this afternoon, Air Force One is at your disposal. That would be special, wouldn't it? Don't just give him a robe. Give him one of your personal robes that you have worn. And again, this would be special to us. You can go to uh, the ballpark and you can buy from a vendor one of those baseball jerseys. Texas Rangers are cheap right now. You could buy one uh, anytime you'd like. I'm sorry if you're a Ranger fan. (laughs) But to have one that, are, uh, that a Texas Ranger gave you that he wore in the seventh game wouldn't matter to me, but it might matter to you. That'd be special, wouldn't it? So give this man a robe you've worn as you've sat upon the throne. You see, the one thing Haman doesn't have, he's got money, he's got prestige, he's second in the kingdom but he's not the king. See, that's out of his grasp, too. And did you notice that all these things that he wants allow him to act like the king? 
And it makes everybody in the kingdom treat him for an afternoon like he's the king. Let me add that in the Middle East, a part of the garment was considered a part of their body, a part of their being. It represented who they were. With closets filled with clothing, it wouldn't necessarily mean as much to the average American. But in that day, they had a tunic. Jesus was taken from him, you remember, and bartered at the foot of the cross. It had been a gift made without any seams. And so because of this, if you track back through the Old Testament, it's interesting to me, this is a little sidebar, but I'll tell you that Aaron's son, when he inherited the priestly office, he wore his father's garments, Numbers chapter 20. He occupied his father's being, his place. Elisha, you remember, he received the mantle of Elijah. What that meant was that he would stand in the place of this prophet and occupy his authority, 2 Kings chapter 2. Army commanders spread out their cloaks on the ground as Jehu walked down the stairs, indicating that they were giving him their very lives. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that unbroken cult, they waved palm branches, which was a signal that they were declaring he was the royal son of David. But they also laid their garments, Luke's gospel tells us, on the road upon which Jesus would take that cult and ride. In other words, they were effectively, symbolically, submitting their being to Christ. So Haman's figured all this out. He's been waiting. Now's my moment. Is this day going to be great or what? What happens next is what I'll simply call the great reversal. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. The Hebrew construction indicates that it'll be Haman who actually dresses Mordecai. It'll be Haman who actually kneels down, which would be their custom, and Mordecai will step on his back to get up on the saddle. It'll be Haman who leads the horse along, declaring the glory of the one the king desires to honor. This is a series of crushing blows. It's a great reversal. Mordecai has gone from sackcloth to honor, from grief to glory. Haman goes from glory to grief. He covers his head in grief and he rushes home as soon as he can get away. His mood now, of course, entirely changed. He's worried. His wife and friends regather. Instead of helping him lick his wounds, they deliver a prophecy. And they still don't deliver it to its fullest extent. They just figure he's going to lose his job. But notice what they say in verse 13 to him. If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And according to the text, verse 14, these words are just coming out of their mouths when the king's limousine shows up to whisk Haman away to the second banquet, which will effectively be his last meal. Only God can arrange the timing of these events. This is the work of providence. Yes, you formulate your plan. 
Yes, you do due diligence, but entrust it to God who establishes your way. And so often it's different than what you'd planned, but you were subservient to him. You had taken your your coat, as it were, and put it on the ground for him to take over your being. One of my friends and members of our church here was commenting to me the other day about this study. He said, you know, when you mentioned the other Sunday that the pieces of the chessboard belonged to God, it struck me as I sat out there and listened to you, it struck me that God can move a king as easily as he can move a pawn. Isn't that good? God can move a queen as easily as he can move a bishop. The game belongs to him. So the pieces are moved about with divine precision, a king who just can't sleep, a servant who just happens to turn to the right page in the book of Chronicles, a queen who, by the way, has delayed in making the request for the second time which she intended to deliver earlier, a man who saves the king's life but isn't rewarded until the day unknown to him he is to be executed. A man at the top of his world now leading a horse through the public square upon which sits his mortal enemy. This is the great reversal. Only God can arrange all these details to come together in one sleepless night. There are some observations I want to give you about the providence of God as we wrap this study up today. Let me give you three of them. First, God is at work even when circumstances are uncontrollable. I, I'm not sure about this, but I have little doubt that during this sleepless night, news was delivered to Mordecai and probably onto Esther that there was a gallows being constructed to an exaggerated height of 75 feet and it wouldn't take long for them to figure out why. It's possible that that news might even galvanize Esther to not delay any longer. This is going to be stunning news that she delivers that we'll study at a later time. But God had to be at work because as much planning as she had gone through, events were outside of her control. Secondly, God is at work even when life is unpredictable. And talk about unpredictable. Think about Mordecai all by himself. He's a nobody from nowhere. And, and, And then he's promoted to work directly for the king inside the administrative wing of the palace. Many historians believe he was the CFO, the chief financial officer of the king. Then he's sentenced to death by Haman's edict. And then he's lamenting outside the palace in sackcloth. Then he's rewarded by the king. And, and, and then he is mounted on the king's own horse. If, by, by now, Mordecai ought to have motion sickness with all the changes in his life. Talk about unpredictable. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's, here's the point I want to make. Stability in life never comes from life. If you're waiting for life to hand you that perfectly calm, smooth, placid water upon which you now can begin to sail, you're going to wait forever. Well, not quite. 
It will smooth out. If you're waiting for everything to get figured out and for life to become predictable, you're waiting for the wrong thing. Stability in life does not come from life. It comes from the one who gives us life and whatever stability we have is in him. In fact, the stability comes from trusting and knowing that God is at work even when life is unpredictable. Third, God is at work even when sin seems unstoppable. The edict has been written into the law of the Medes and Persians. It's unchangeable. What we'll find out later that many believers don't know is that the edict is going to be carried out. What will happen is that the Jews will be allowed to defend themselves. This gallows is seven stories high. It's not coming down anytime soon. Things never looked worse, but God was at work. As the psalmist said, God never slumbers or sleeps. So when you have trouble sleeping, he's awake with you. When you finally go off to sleep, he doesn't. He works on. Because God is never tired you can be. Isn't that good to know? Because God never sleeps, we can. We don't have to be in control of every situation and every circumstance and every person because God already is. Even when the stars are out and the sun's gone and disappeared, the angelic hosts of heaven are busy doing his bidding the events of, of life are, are his horsemen riding upon the winds of his will. His actions and counteractions, his plans and his counterplans are moving about the universe and your life with perfect precision and irresistible power. God is at work even when Circumstances are uncontrollable, even when life is unpredictable, even when sin seems unstoppable. There is a gallows 75 feet high. Have I said that yet? (laughs) And a king just can't sleep. Think about it. If he had gone to sleep, none of this would have taken place. He just couldn't sleep. William Cooper was befriended by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. In fact, he was discipled by Newton. Cooper, as a believer, still struggled with bouts of suicidal depression. One evening, he called for a carriage and ordered the driver to take him to the Ouse River where he planned to throw himself in and drown. The the river was three miles away, The driver picked up quickly the the state of mind of his passenger and knew that would be the only reason he'd want to be taken to the river. And he would say later that he breathed the prayer of thanks as they were driving toward the river and suddenly a thick fog 
came out of nowhere. The driver intentionally got lost in the fog as Cooper fell into a deep sleep in the carriage behind him. After several hours, he pulled the carriage back up at Cooper's home. Cooper woke up and said, we're home, and why is that? The carriage driver said to him, well, sir, it was the fog. I'm sorry. Cooper paid his fare, went into his home, and pondered how he had been spared from harming himself by what he would claim to be nothing less than the providence of God. And that same night, he would write the lyrics to his most famous hymn, 1774, was the year he wrote this in that very night, these lyrics. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. For just a few moments with your heads bowed, let's let this settle. God is at work. Even when whatever circumstances there are that you've come in today believing are uncontrollable, they are under his control. Even when life to you is unpredictable, it is not just predictable to God, it is ordained by God, whom you can trust. Even when sin invades your life, those around you would do you harm. God orders even the chaos and the corruption that touches our lives to bring about his perfect purposes. And so, Father, we trust you today that behind a frowning providence, at least it would seem so by our senses, by faith we state, there is a smiling face. And as we heard earlier in this service, there is nothing that can separate us from this faithful, gracious Lord to whom we belong. Even we cannot break the chain that binds us to your heart. So, Father, would we leave her today with you elevated as the highest object of our devotion and love? Can we do anything less than that? Can we just a little better, a little more today trust you as life unfolds for us? For you are faithful. To demonstrate to our world that is hungering for just one more thing that we have found the one who is the most important thing. 
and by that be a living testimony to a searching world that we have found the true and living God. I don't know if you know that little chorus, Christ is all I need. Let's sing that. Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need.